my name is Chris McCraney. I'm one of the elders here at Pillar of Dumfries. And uh, let me tell you that standing at this podium is every bit as intimidating as you think it would be. Uh, I think the main reason is this. Uh, I'm pretty old, obviously. Uh, I've been in a lot of churches, and I've heard a lot of preachers, many of whom are excellent. But nowhere have I consistently heard clear, bold, and doctrinally sound preaching like I have heard these past 10 years from Colby Garman and Clint Clifton. If this is the first church you've attended, uh, you may not realize how blessed we've been to sit under the preaching of these men. So I wanted to start by acknowledging that up front. Of course, this means that everyone here has high expectations for preaching, <laughs> which makes me a little anxious. Uh, I feel kind of like the, uh, the place kicker who gets called over by the coach right after the, the last backup quarterback is pulled off the field on a stretcher, right? Um, and those of you who have stood up here before me have probably felt a little anxiety as well. Right? Uh, except maybe Terrence Demps. You guys remember when Terrence preached a while back in Swan's Creek? That guy hit it out of the park and, and didn't break a sweat. Uh, I have to confess, I'm a little, little jealous. Uh, I, I will repent of that later, um, hopefully. Uh, so I will give you all the same admonition that I frequently give our youth on Wednesday nights. Study the scriptures carefully and see if what I say is true. This is how Luke described the Bereans in Acts 17, and this is how we should approach every sermon, lesson, or book that we hear or read. Uh, the scripture we're studying today is James 2, 14 to 26. James 2, 14 to 26. It says this, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, oh, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word, and thank you that we can trust you to fulfill the promises you make to us. We know that you haven't answered every question, but thank you for giving us everything we need to know you and to make you known. Speak to us now through the scripture. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.
before we look at this passage, I think it's worth taking a moment to remember how we got here. Colby started this series on the book of James at the beginning of January. He said that James is about integrating faith and life. He gave several great sermons on the first half of chapter 1 about how trials build the endurance we need to finish our race victoriously. Brian Musler preached from James 1, 12-18 about how God is sovereign through our trials and equips us to persevere. Then Colby preached on undivided clarity about anger. Uh, several people have told me that this sermon convicted them, and I have to confess it convicted me too. Some of you may be surprised to learn that I sometimes struggle with emotion. Right? And while it is true that I generally deal with my emotions by just not having them, um, on, on rare occasions they do come out. Uh, for example, I subscribe to the Ted Vinatieri School of Thought when it comes to driving courtesy. I don't want to mischaracterize Ted's position on this. Okay? In fact, a quote that is often attributed to Augustine is, never judge a philosophy by its abuse. In other words, always go directly to the philosopher to learn what he believes. So I'm going to let Master Ted express his own philosophy here, uh, but I will confess that my human anger is often aroused by the way people drive around here. And in my defense, okay, I'm a fan of law and order. Right? Uh, the reason the driving rules are in place is to protect people. Right? When someone is screaming down I-95 at 90 miles an hour, weaving in and out of traffic, it occurs to me that they present a danger to others, especially since many of our youth are driving, including all three of my boys. Reckless drivers do call anger, uh, some would even say a mild rage, uh, to well up in my heart. In fact, while riding with me, uh, my family has often heard me wish out loud that I had a magic wand that I could use to make people disappear. It, it, this is obviously unrealistic, okay? Uh, a car whose driver has suddenly vanished but is still careening down the road uh, presents an immediate danger. So my desire for such a wand is, is theoretical, mostly. Um, but that desire is still a manifestation of the anger of man. Fortunately, one of my sons has been a source of godly wisdom for me on this. My middle son, Michael, is very creative. He's our artist. And uh, after listening to me repeatedly express my desire for a magic wand, he recently made me one. And here it is. <laughs> now, this is not representative of his artwork, okay? He obviously took a minimalist approach to this thing. Uh, if, if you've never seen his actual art, uh, it's phenomenal, okay? Uh, the problem is I haven't been able to make anything actually banished yet. And I tried it, and it's not... Okay. So uh, either it doesn't work, or I'm just using it wrong. But it's a thought that counts, right? And I don't know if Michael meant this as uh, something to be funny or if he was making a statement about my sanctification, but I appreciate it either way. Uh, then Colby preached on undivided hearing and doing. He showed us how James cautions us to avoid self-deception about our faith by engaging in practical obedience. We cannot separate hearing and doing because genuine faith leads to a change in our doing. And Colby's last message from James was on undivided love in the church, in which he observed that genuine faith in Christ and partiality cannot be held together. So that brings us to today's passage in chapter 2, 
which talks about undivided faith and works. The main idea today is this. We are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. We are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. Uh, That's a quote that is often attributed to Martin Luther, and John Calvin wrote something very similar in 1547. Uh, so I just want to go on record as giving credit to the original author. Uh, see, on Wednesday night, uh, during a group exercise, one of our young men took exception to the fact that I quoted Colby verbatim when I answered a question, uh, and I wanted to warn that young man that I'm going to do that again later on this morning, uh, and that I know where he lives <laughs> in, in Montclair. Um, did anyone notice how this passage from James compares to the scripture reading from Ephesians. Paul says, by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. James says, a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. At first glance, they appear to have a serious disagreement. Now, uh, we homeschool our boys, and when I say we, uh, what I mean is Amy does 90% of the work, and I kind of, you know, scoot on the back end. Uh, but as, as part of the classical curriculum that we use, uh, we teach them logic and rhetoric. How to think clearly, reason correctly, and persuade others in the truth. This is one of several areas where I discovered a huge gap in my own education. So I've learned a tremendous amount as well. And passing this on to our boys has been a great privilege. Uh, That is, it was, until they started using those skills against me. Uh, One of my boys is particularly good at pointing out inconsistencies in my statements and my reasoning, and I'm not going to embarrass him by naming him, so I'll just call him uh, number three. But (laughs) this skill makes him an excellent debater, uh, but it does mean I have to stay on my toes around him and always think about what I say. Um, When we compare Paul with James, their statements appear to be inconsistent. Are we justified by faith or by works? Or by faith plus works? It seems as if there is a contradiction between the two. In logic, the law of non-contradiction can be stated this way. Contradictory statements cannot both be true at the same time and in the same sense. Again, contradictory statements cannot both be true at the same time and in the same sense. For example, if I claimed that Colby is physically located in Okinawa and Colby is physically located in Virginia, those statements could not both be true at the same time. At the present time, Colby is physically located in Okinawa. Next week, it will be true that Colby is physically located in Virginia. Both statements can be true but not at the same time. As another example, Charles Dickens begins A Tale of Two Cities with, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. He's referring to the same time period. So those statements cannot both be true in the same sense. Dickens is comparing the cities of London and Paris and describing the situation in 18th century revolutionary France. For the oppressed common folk, it was a spring of hope. But for the nobility who were watching their status and their fortunes crumble, it was a winter of despair. This period was characterized 
by tremendous acts of murderous violence, but also by heroic acts of sacrifice and compassion. So both of Dickens' statements can be true, just not in the same sense. We can see that the claims of Paul and James are both true, as long as you recognize that they are not using phrases like justified by in the same sense. Now, let's start by defining a few terms. And uh, note takers, if you miss anything, uh, I will happily give you the references and definitions I use afterwards. Uh, I know it is hard to write fast, uh, especially if you're a, a Marine using a crayon, so I'll, I'll go as slow as I can. Now, actually, uh, before the front row here comes up on stage, uh, I'm a Marine myself, uh, and it has been an awfully long time since I was actually in the Marine Corps. Uh, but as such, I frequently resort to diagrams. Today, I'm going to recycle one that I've used uh, with our youth uh, from time to time. Uh, note that a, a diagram is an aid to understanding. Okay? Uh, it is not a substitute for scripture. Uh, if it is, the Holy Spirit would have left us a, a graphic novel. Right? Um, this is only a picture. If it doesn't help you, drop it. Here's how things work under the law. Someone commits a crime. Once it has been determined that this person did, in fact, commit the crime, they are declared guilty. As a result, the guilty person is condemned to the appropriate punishment. We would say that justice is done. Justice is getting what we deserve. Right? Again, justice means getting what we deserve. But none of us want justice here. Right? Our sin, our crime, is sinning against God. Romans 3.23 tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of sin is death. So we can conclude that we all deserve condemnation, eternal separation from God in a place called hell. In fact, Ephesians 2 tells us that even though we were still physically alive, we were already dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked. That is incredibly bad news. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Showing us mercy means not delivering the punishment that we have earned. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. Again, mercy is not getting what we deserve. Romans 8.1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But God does even better than that. Even though he knows we have committed the crime, he declares us not guilty and calls us righteous. R.C. Sproul defines righteousness as doing what is right in the sight of God. And that's pretty simple, but it hits the nail on the head. Righteousness is doing what is right in the sight of God. Another way to put that is what Paul writes in Romans 5.1. We have been justified by faith. Justification refers to what God is doing when he renders a verdict and declares us to be righteous. It's a legal term. Romans 8.31 says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Romans 8.33 asks, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies who is to condemn. Criminal proceedings are, are adversarial. Right? It's one party against another. 
the prosecutor brings charges against the defendant, and if the defendant is convicted, they are condemned. One way to remember this is, when I have been justified, God is declaring that it's just as if I'd never sinned. Justification is an act. It happens once. It is not a gradual process. God strikes the cosmic gavel and renders a verdict. He pardons all our sins, accepts us as righteous in his sight, and restores us into fellowship with himself. Justification is an act of God's free grace. Grace is getting something we don't deserve. Right? Again, grace is getting something we don't deserve. We don't deserve to be called righteous, but God does it anyway. But there's just one thing. God is a God of justice. He is perfectly wise and perfectly just. It is not in his nature to tolerate a miscarriage of justice. Romans 3 says, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. We cannot earn this status because we are not righteous in and of ourselves. Justice must be served because we have sinned and fallen short. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5 tells us that his act of righteousness leads to justification and life. By his obedience, the many will be made righteous. Christ lived a perfectly obedient life. He was absolutely righteous and did not deserve any punishment. But he willingly went to the cross as a sacrifice for us. The Hebrews in the Old Testament sacrificed animals to atone for their sins. Atone, in this sense, meant to cover over. Not to hide, but to do away with the people's sins and to restore a right relationship with God. But those were imperfect sacrifices that pointed towards Jesus' perfect sacrifice once and for all. In fact, New Testament writers used different words for this than the words the Old Testament writers use. The New Testament words are usually translated as propitiation or redemption. Christ has redeemed us. We were bought with a price, and that price was his blood. If we repent of our sins, believe in Jesus, and place our trust in him, we are justified. Right? So far, so good? Uh, Marines, show me those opposable thumbs if you're still with me. Good? All right. um, at that point, Christ regenerates us. 2 Corinthians 5.17 tells us, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. From that moment on, the Holy Spirit begins a process of sanctification. Sanctification means setting apart, specifically for God's purposes. What it looks like is us becoming more like Christ. It continues for the rest of our earthly lives until we are glorified with him in heaven forever. And uh, forever is a pretty long time, so that line actually extends like uh, across the Atlantic. Um, in his high priestly prayer just before his arrest, Christ prayed for his disciples that God would sanctify them in the truth. Hebrews 10, 12 to 14 says, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. This is where we begin to develop that uh, practical righteousness that Colby has talked about recently. And it's here that I think we can find the resolution to the apparent conflict between Paul and James. Paul, James, and the other apostles agreed that true faith will bear fruit. 
In Matthew 3, John the Baptist put a pretty sharp point on it. When he saw some of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with righteousness, or with repentance, sorry. Uh, in John 15, 5, Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Paul wrote to the Colossians that he was praying for them to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. When Paul and the other apostles started preaching uh, that we are saved by grace through faith and not by trying to earn our own salvation through works, it was great news. As the apostles obeyed the Great Commission and their teaching spread, God started adding to his church. At Pentecost, 3,000 people were added in one day. It was like the, the Praetorian Project on steroids. Right? Um, but eventually, some people started twisting the good news. They started to think, well, if we have this faith, it doesn't matter how we live. Right? We can throw off all restraint and do what we want. These false teachers and false believers were treating faith like a get-out-of-jail-free card. They claimed to have faith in Christ, but there is no evidence of that faith in their lives. So when this false teaching about fruitless faith came up, Paul started to combat it. Romans 6, 1 through 2, he wrote, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Romans 6, 12 to 13, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Galatians 5.13, For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. James was fighting against the same false teaching. In verse 14, chapter 2, he wrote, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? James uses an analogy in verses 15 and 16. If a brother or a sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? If one of your friends was cold and hungry, and you walked past them and said, hey, get some food and stay warm, but you did nothing to help them do that, do you really care if they get warm or find something to eat? No. And what kind of a friend would you really be at that point? This is what James is talking about in chapter 1. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. In Galatians 5.6, Paul says that what really counts is faith working through love. James wrote in verse 26, faith apart from works is dead. James and Paul both knew that a faith that did not result in the fruit of good works was useless and dead. So what kind of faith do we need to be justified or saved? Well, the words faith and believe come from the same Greek root. Faith is the noun, believe is the verb. And in this sense, uh, belief includes an element of trust or fidelity. True, genuine faith is generally described as consisting of three things. Knowledge, 
intellectual assent and trust. Knowledge, intellectual assent, and trust. And each of these is required to enable the next thing. First of all, knowledge. Uh, I can have knowledge about something without considering that thing to be true. For example, if I read a scientific article by someone who believes that there is a, a body in our solar system named Pluto, and that this body deserves to be called a planet, and after reading that article, I know what this person thinks, but I don't believe it. And uh, if any of you are Pluto planet activists, I apologize in advance, this is just a, an illustration. Um, but that's an example of knowledge, or, or maybe awareness. The second thing, intellectual assent, is like belief in a lesser sense. Uh, think of it as belief with a little b. I can learn this knowledge and be convinced that the, the Pluto preacher is correct. Right? I can agree intellectually that Pluto is in fact a planet. But does that belief really affect anything in my life? Absolutely not. I'm not planning a trip to Pluto, and I'm not depending on Pluto's planethood to change my life or what I'm doing. This is what James is getting at in chapter 2, verse 19. You believe that God is one. You do well. And that was sarcastic, by the way. Because he says then, even the demons believe and shudder. In fact, I would bet that most demons have a stronger belief in Jesus than many people who call themselves a Christian. In Luke 4, a demon who is possessing a man spoke directly to Jesus. And here's what he said. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. In Luke 8, another demon, actually multiple demons, said to Jesus, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. At that point, Jesus told them, Well, get out of this guy and you can possess those pigs over there. Right? They did. Uh, pigs went for a swim and that was that. These demons knew exactly who Jesus is and what he could do. It has been said that demons are orthodox in their theology. They have the first part, knowledge, and that second part, intellectual assent, down cold. But even with that, theirs is only a belief with a little b. They are still in rebellion against God. They don't repent and don't put their trust in Jesus to save them. And that brings us to the third part, trust. Trust is described in Psalm 37.5. Commit your way to the Lord, trust in him, and he will act. 2 Timothy 1.12 says, But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. And that can also be translated, what I have entrusted to him. This is belief in a greater sense, belief with a big B, a belief that includes trust and true faith. Romans 10.14 describes these three elements in reverse. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? In other words, first we hear, then we believe with a little b, and then, number three, call on the name of the Lord to be saved. Uh, some of you have probably been to the Army's Jump School at uh, Fort Benning in Georgia. Um, I went to that school back in the last century, over three decades ago. Right? Uh, for those of you that are familiar with this, we use the T-10 Charlie parachute. Uh, I'm pretty sure the only place you can find one of those now is in a museum. Uh, but I first learned about parachutes as a boy, watching movies and reading books. That was knowledge. 
as I was going through jump school, I learned how parachutes worked and how to use them, and that reinforced my belief, little b belief, that they actually worked as advertised. But then the first jump they came. I strapped on a parachute, I was crammed in the back of a C-130 with a bunch of other students, and we took off. As we made our first pass over the drop zone, I watched in disbelief as our three instructors stood up, hooked up, and casually walked out the door of the aircraft when the light turned green. Suddenly, the realization hit me that this aircraft was not going to land with me in it. <laughs> made a second pass, and it was my turn. I was terrified. But I stood up, hooked up, and stepped out the door. Obviously, it worked, because I'm here. Um, but it was only then that I really trusted my parachute. Even then, though, when you jump like that, you jump with a reserve chute in case the main chute malfunctions. As Christians, we do not have a reserve parachute. All of our trust must be in Christ. James is warning his readers that if there is no evidence of obedience in their lives, then they may not have true faith. Jesus said in Matthew 7, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. Can you imagine what that would sound like? James does not want any of his readers to hear Christ tell them, I never knew you on that day. You might ask, well, can't God see our hearts? Yes. Right? Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks upon the heart. So why would you try to judge someone based on their works? Well, James isn't telling me to judge someone else. I'm not called to point at people and say, you know, I don't think that guy's really a Christian. This warning is for us to honestly look at ourselves and make sure our faith is genuine and true. Dead faith will do nothing to save us. Paul says that we are saved by grace through faith that is not the result of works. James says that faith without works or without obedience is dead faith. In one sense, Paul is talking about a man's faith in God's sight. In another sense, James is talking about a man's faith in man's sight. Another reason that we can be confident that Paul and James are not contradicting each other is that they both point to Abraham to support their arguments. In Romans 3 and 4, Paul writes that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law, and that if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. Paul tells us Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. In James 2.23, James agrees verbatim. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. They are both citing Genesis 15.6, when Abraham believed God's promise of future descendants. That's the believe with a big B. But James also talks about justification by works in a different sense, in verses 21 and 22. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. James is pointing to Abraham's willingness to sacrifice Isaac in obedience to God in Genesis 22. 
This was years after Abraham had believed God and was counted righteous. So while justification, sanctification, and glorification are distinct things, they are inseparable. A couple nights ago, it was uh, cold and wet outside, and uh, we, we built a fire in our fireplace. The fire produced heat and light, two distinct things that cannot be separated in this case. The fact that we see justification, sanctification, and glorification happening in that order reflects the reality that God saves, is saving, and will save. Obedience is evidence that our faith is true, but obedience by itself is not the ultimate goal. Now, Colby and I don't see eye to eye on everything. For example, several years ago, I was present when Colby made the voluntary admission in front of a room full of witnesses that he enjoys listening to Post Malone. <laughs> I, on the other hand, do not. This information is a little dated, uh, and it is possible that Colby has since repented of this. So um, I don't want to mischaracterize his current position on the matter. Uh, but one thing I can absolutely endorse is his appreciation of C.S. Lewis. In Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis wrote, we might think that God wanted simply obedience to a set of rules, whereas he really wants people of a particular sort. God is turning us into that sort of people through sanctification. Obedience also strengthens our faith. Mark chapter 9 tells of a man who had a son who was possessed with the Spirit. This man brought his son to Jesus and said, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus responded, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. So the desperate father cried out, I believe, help my unbelief. He had faith, but it wasn't perfect faith. Fortunately for us, the faith that is necessary to receive Christ is not perfect faith, but true faith. Abraham struggled with his faith, even after he'd been counted righteous by God in Genesis 15:6. Two verses later, God promises Abraham possession of the land. And Abraham asks, Oh, Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? In Genesis 16, Abraham agrees to take matters into his own hands regarding God's promise of a son and sleeps with Hagar. In Genesis 17, after God tells Abraham that his wife will bear children, Abraham said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? And shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? But God continued to patiently reveal himself to Abraham, to the point where Abraham was eventually able to obey God's command to sacrifice Isaac, for whom he waited for so long, because Abraham trusted that God could raise Isaac from the dead. God was testing Abraham's faith, but God already knew what Abraham was going to do. Abraham may not have known what he was going to do. When God told Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, and Abraham had to decide whether or not to obey, his faith was being completed by his works. Finally, doing good works is part of our sanctification. Romans 6.22 says, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. This doesn't mean we should sit 
an irresistible burning desire to live sacrificially. It also doesn't mean that if we aren't spontaneously driven to do good works, that we don't have faith. Fortunately, C.S. Lewis comes to the rescue again. In Mere Christianity, he tells us that the way to become loving is not to sit trying to manufacture affectionate feelings when we don't feel affection towards someone. Instead, he writes, do not waste time bothering whether you love someone. Act as if you did. As soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets. When you are behaving as if you love someone, you will presently come to love him. So what does this look like for us here and now? Well, every Sunday, a small army of childcare workers under the command of Lydia Ramsire devote their time and energy to caring for and teaching our younger children. This is not an easy task. I'll be honest, I could barely tolerate my own children when they were being difficult as toddlers, much less someone else's. Right? But these workers allow the parents of these young children to sit and hear a meaningful message while planting and cultivating the seeds of the gospel in these children's hearts. Every Sunday, part of our setup team gets this place ready for our service. They are also devoting time and energy to this, and it can be a pretty thankless job. But without them, nothing that happens here on Sunday morning would happen. In fact, when I worked on the setup team uh, several years ago at Swans Creek, uh, we used a music room for one of the children's classes. Uh, and for several weeks, uh, for some reason, it, it was full of xylophones. Before each service, I had to carefully move all of them to the side of the room, then cover them all up with sheets to conceal them from curious young hands, and then replace them all in their original position after the service when the children had left. By the way, uh, none of the xylophone bars were permanently attached to the frame. Right? So uh, if one of the xylophones got tipped over during the move, or if a child discovered one of them before an adult could stop them, uh, it threatened disaster. That happened to me one day and it looked like a xylophone factory had exploded. I just, uh, I'm not sure where I was going with that, but um, <laughs> okay. these are works, right? But they're works in the sense of being actions or things that we do. They are not a legalistic attempt to merit our own salvation. Right? They are also essential tasks to minister to this body of Christ. I've only mentioned two of the host of ministries we have. Right? Uh, there are people praying before the service for the service today. It would take too long to list all these ministries. But people are serving at Pillar and within Pillar somewhere every day of the week. Now, I grew up during the Cold War. And like every red-blooded American, I hate communism the way that Chuck Norris hates weakness. So, when... When I read Luke in, in Acts chapter 2, verse 44, describing the early church, and he said, all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. It gave me pause. Right? Now, uh, don't worry, my fellow citizens, uh, this is not a call for us to become Marxists. These actions of the disciples are voluntary and not compelled by the government. But look at what else happened. In verse 46, day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, note that this is not a strict cause and effect relationship in this passage. 
uh, God is the one who added to their number because only God can change hearts. But what would be the result today if a lost world saw Christians living this way, so contrary to the priorities that drive most of our society? Well, Paul paints that picture in Philippians chapter 2. He writes, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. We are called to be salt and light, but we can't do that if we are not acting on our faith. This is what I think he means in verse 12. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. He's not telling us to do the works of the law to earn our salvation. He's telling us to live out our faith as we must if we have true faith to begin with. These things are not easy to do. Sometimes our sanctification can be painful. But God has a glorious end state in mind for us. As C.S. Lewis wrote, we are bidden to put on Christ, to become like God. That is, whether we like it or not, God intends to give us what we need, not what we now think we want. In closing, we have a creator. He is a loving, all-powerful, all-knowing God who is completely good. He created the universe and everything in it, including each of us. But we have sinned. God gave us the freedom to make moral choices, and every one of us has chosen to disobey him. The wages of our sin is spiritual death. We have an earned an eternity apart from God. But through God's mercy and grace, we have a Savior. Jesus, the Son of God, who was born as a man, lived a perfect life of obedience, and died on the cross for our sins in our place. He was raised again and lives today. So now, we must respond. We must either accept or reject God's offer of forgiveness. Rejecting Christ leads to an eternity apart from God. But believing who Christ is, repenting from our sin, and turning to God, truly placing our faith in Jesus, leads to an eternal life with God. That eternal life can begin right now. As the worship team comes up, uh, if you have done that, we invite you to join us as we take communion. Communion was instituted by Christ as a way for us to remember his sacrifice. And he invites all believers to do that. But if you have not placed your faith in Christ, we ask that you let the elements pass. You won't offend anyone by doing that. No one's going to point at you and start whispering. Uh, but scripture calls for only believers in Christ to partake in this. If you have not placed your faith in Christ, though, please seriously consider your reasons for not doing so. We cannot try to maintain a neutral position regarding God. This is the most important decision you ever make, and one in which not deciding is in itself a decision. It has been said that every agnostic becomes an atheist as soon as they die. Time is of the essence. If you have questions about what it means to be a Christian, please find me, another elder, or just about anyone here with a pulse, and ask them your questions. Right? We will endeavor to point you to the answers contained in the Scripture.